welcome to The Light Pod, brought to you by Lodi, a hub for ideas, education, and a little bit of entertainment when it comes to architectural lighting. I'm your host, Sam Corbel. Late in 2021, I got the opportunity to catch up with three very special individuals, all who have a world of experience in lighting design. Dan Weissman at LAM Partners, who's a senior associate and the director of LAM Labs. Kate St. Laurent at Canon Design, who's an associate VP and the director of their entire lighting design studio. And our very own Sarah Schoenauer, the VP of education and engagement at LightEye. In case you didn't know, Sarah was actually a lighting designer for 16 years in Boston at Canon Design as well. After a short coffee break and an opportunity to grab some more trail mix, checks mix, and of course, goldfish, we came back for part two. My first question to the team was, manufacturers, they're kind of the other critical piece of this. Everybody's designing it, but we need equipment to go into space. I asked them, what do manufacturers need to do that they're not doing? If you're a manufacturer, Turn the volume up. Here's what they had to say. Product. Website. Product Ooh, plus. website. Samples. For sure. Flexibility. Support. Transparent pricing. Designers are not only paid to design and create, but just simply be creative and come up with new solutions, new ideas, and of course, challenge everybody to say, can anyone make me something to do this? I asked him what products aren't out there. What products do you wish literally could be created? Check this out. Curved perimeter slots. <laughs> Curved knife edge coves. <laughs> yeah, have you looked at formal lighting? <laughs> Form factors were definitely a big part of the conversation. Talking to them about what's out there versus what could be coming, something that could be formed, something that could be curved. Well, that was a pretty big, interesting part of the topic. I mean, architecture is getting a little bit more organic after all, isn't it? We need some uh, transparency in terms of material health. And I think, you know, a little bit more of a step up from the manufacturers. I mean, now in my new position, I am speaking to manufacturers in a new way. And I hear a lot of, really, is that the expectation that we need to know where every screw comes from? And the answer is kind of yes. Now, how about just throw away all the PVC wiring altogether. Right? Like, that's there are easy options first step. available. Let's just rip the bandit off. I think that's going to be coming. I mean, that's certainly becoming a signal in our industry, and we're following on the heels of the great work that the architecture and interior design industry has already done. But I think it's time for manufacturers to start to play ball and start showing us that they can take that comment to heart and really start introducing new products that support those tenants and those ethics. Or just revamping their existing product line with better material sourcing. Absolutely. The nature of what light fixtures are built out of is something that continues to be a topic that's discussed more and more in our industry today. So I posed it to the panel and asked all three of them, what do you guys think about materials? What do you think about getting the information in terms of the materials that are in the light fixtures? And also, why is this something important? Why is this something we need to pay more attention to as an entire industry? Being honest is just the first step. I mean, obviously what we really want is buildings that are going to do no harm. That would be a really good first step. And then the second step is buildings that actually can be more healthful and healthy. If that's building materials, maybe it's probably more about, you know, allowing daylight into the building and and making sure that it's the right kind of light at the right time. But electric lights had bulbs and lamps, as we talked before, that were replaceable. And Mm. then Mm. LEDs came on board and all of a sudden everything wasn't replaceable anymore. A lot of manufacturers have since figured that out and a lot more of them can swap things out in the field. I think taking that capability even further is always going to be 
useful um, so that the hardware that's installed doesn't have to be completely thrown out when yeah. something goes wrong. Diving into that conversation a little bit further, you know, I just wanted to continue to unpack things. I felt like we needed some simple questions answered. So I just was curious, why is it not okay to just throw everything away? I mean, really, why don't we just throw everything away? No, I know there's some obvious answers to that, but this was an important part of our conversation, one that really started to articulate the need for a movement to think more about how we treat our buildings, how we treat our planet, how we treat everything that we put into an environment that isn't 100% natural. Climate change. <laughs> Come on, Sam. I think what we're really looking for, for as an industry is looking for interchangeability. Yeah. I mean, what we really want is something that down the road you can, by looking at your iPhone or whatever device you have, you can say now it changed the light temperature, you know, change the cups, the light temperature, <laughs> who am I? The color temperature, um, you know, the spectral quality of, of it, you know, the dimming and everything else, every other parameter that we can control, not to mention the voltage, not to mention if you want it to speak a different language and a different protocol, depending on, you know, different things. And that we're starting to see that those interchangeabilities are possible. Um, and I think by asking for them, we'll be able to get more. Totally. With the amount of products on the market and the amount of design challenges that are present today, it's a dime a dozen in terms of where you can go and what you can pick. It's also somewhat limiting because when you order something or you pick something, it is what it is. But the opportunity to now have lighting control systems as part of our buildings, either as a requirement of code, a requirement to meet a certain certification, or potentially still in some places, just a, a total luxury to have. I was curious to know what's the future look like when it comes to literally controlling your solution to the form of your spec becomes simpler and everything on site is just something you can literally control. Well, a good starting place is where we've seen both the resi and the low end commercial markets with color temperature selectable fixtures mm -hmm. in the field with a, just a little dip switch in the back. Mm -hmm. And I've certainly been on job sites where not all of them are correctly switched and you have to punch list that. So it's a double-edged sword because that also comes with some incredible convenience and the ability to make a change in the field if you, everybody realizes eh, maybe 3500k is a little too cool for this yeah space. or going back and they change the material on you and right. you go oh oh brick now yeah. all right well maybe yeah. we want to go a little warmer you know i think to your point sam you know having infinite possibility can be dangerous yes. and i think as we've all kind of been through with lighting control systems you know having a million options is not always the best thing when at the end of the day somebody wants to walk in and the lights turn on and that's the expectation um so i think having an interface that layer between the infinite possibilities and what the users need, which again is what the lighting designer does. They interpret that set of needs. And I think it actually opens up a new service line, you know, for those of the lighting design world that have jumped into controls and really embraced it and understand that a, a really wonderful luminous environment these days cannot really exist without a control system. Um, I think it's really important that they continue on that path and also embrace that, you know, that limiting of controls and making sure the right palettes in front of the right people is important. Oh, but controls brings up a whole nother deep pit of questions because where's the standardization on protocols? Where's the standardization on flexibility and those lockout capabilities and the pricing issues of, you know, if you have the, the concept of providing ultimate flexibility, but then the client can't afford 
the control hardware necessary to make that flexibility actually happen, there's a disconnect there. Absolutely. And we're, we're seeing the role of integrators also become a 100%. really important player to help, mm -hmm. well, maybe just for, you know, efficacy, because not all of us really want to be as nerdy as Dan is, I you know, and get into not the, want to be on the zeros and ones of control everything. It, figuring out the control protocol. Well, That's and I think not... it's really exciting to see an, an integration position become a design position and kind of also sort of marry this technical and artistic piece and, and kind of actualize well, the design idea. We've talked about internally is that is that a kind of skill set that we want to actually hire for it at the lighting design firm providing some of the post-occupancy control commissioning service mm -hmm. when we took a deeper dive at the landscape of lighting controls lighting manufacturers in general there are certain things that have to come together in order for one device to talk to another and while a proprietary nature may be in some way, shape, or form, the best way to do it because one person developed it all under one roof, it becomes something that forces you into a certain box, which isn't always the best solution for design. So creating standards and protocols, especially when it comes to the evolution of smart building technology and how lighting is starting to integrate into all of that, is something that is becoming seemingly more and more of a requirement and a necessity for the design community to move forward and practice what they do best, which is putting that sequence of operations and system together. But being limited can be frustrating at some point in time. So I asked the group, you know, what can we do to address that? Or how might we pave the way forward when it comes to specifically developing all of this just a little bit more? Well, one thing Kate and I have talked a lot about is manufacturers jumping further into the research space. And if you're going to sell us a tunable white product that ostensibly makes people smarter or more attentive, then show me the research that came with that. Get involved with the case studies, help get these products onto projects where the partners have an alignment with those mission ideas and get it out there so we can point to something the way that lighting designers point to Hassong Mahone when it comes to daylight in schools. We need that. And the only way it's really gonna happen is if the manufacturers put their money where their mouth is. Sam, you talked about hurdles and I think one of the biggest hurdles is getting the electrical contractors on board. Mm -hmm. Because if they're not on board, they have no idea how to price these systems and just it goes right out the window. It's a great point. Right out the window. I've never seen this DMX thing before. That's $100,000. That's a stereotype. However. <laughs> it's my Southern contractor voice. <laughs> Maybe we should. Yeah. Let's Tell cut, him let's that you're cut, Let's cut this one out. <laughs> Don't edit that right out. No, but to, to your point, Kate, like if you are are um, specifying or selecting or recommending a system based on a set of parameters that may have a cost implication, you know, an IoT is a great example that you can install this faster. It may not be able to do everything that a traditional lighting system can, but it can do what it needs to do in that room. Well, if that's the premise and the person that's pricing that doesn't understand the system and doesn't understand that instead of pulling conduit, you know, they're pulling cat five or whatever it's going to be, then those savings potentially evaporate. And so there is education that manufacturers are in a position to do that lighting designers and electrical engineers and architects aren't um, to help with that adoption and help to get some of these products on job sites for the right cost, which of course is, is a goal of all of ours. When we took a dive into the manufacturing side of things and the services that they provide to the lighting design community past, of course, just simply building uh, products, developing them and everything else. There's a need to have access to information. There's a need to understand every tidbit of information behind it. And there's a, a very strong and robust channel in place 
with not only manufacturers, but reps, distributors, contractors, and everyone else that starts to bring everything together. But at the end of the day, when a designer's working through their design process specifically, there's something specific that they're looking for. And being able to get that as fast as possible uh, is very much a service aspect of the industry. So we dove into that a little bit more and what it means to service the design community. Well, I think this is one of those topics that's highly dependent on particular manufacturers because at the end of the day, even though we're working with local reps, we're still going to manufacturers' individual websites for all the product data and their quality of access to information varies widely depending on the manufacturer. Mm -hmm. Obviously, at this point in time, the website is literally everybody's front door. And so prioritizing that is critical. And I can come up with a couple manufacturer names that I won't say on... (laughs) on air that really could get their their act together on this front. But, you know, easy access to product offerings, literature with good explanations of how products work, how they're supposed to be mounted, how they're supposed to be intended, the IS and digital data that we've talked about previously, cut sheets being clear and not with like a whole bunch of superfluous jargony elements. Taking it a step further in the manufacturing conversation, we talked a little bit about what does it mean to promote a product versus simply give someone the information they need to use that product. Of course, everybody's proud of what they do, but at the end of the day, efficiency is also something that's super important. So how do you split up that access to information and how might it be best delivered to the designers so that they can effectively grab what they need and be the most efficient they can with the time they have to do the job of designing with a specific product. I would love it if you could configure a fixture on a website, click a button, and they send you a sample <laughs> in two weeks. That'd be great. Mm. Yeah. Two weeks, come on. Okay, be fine, nice, fine, fine. especially in this climate. Fine, four weeks. With 3D printing, it's definitely a possibility. I mean, there's a whole, yeah, there's a whole new world when it comes to 3D printing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Continuing down the train of manufacturing and how they can do a better job of not only giving access to information, but also providing designers with the tools they truly do need. Sometimes that's literally just a physical sample in their hands. Designers really want to experience that light firsthand. They can put two and two together and understand what they're seeing with a sample versus how can it be applied in a space. And making that something that's easy to do, making something that's accessible to do, goes without saying it supports their intent. So we got a little bit more into the details and the weeds of why not only that's something that they value, but something important and that should be a service that manufacturers really think about not only continuing to offer, but beefing that up and making it easy to request that. And there are certain aspects that are going to be more important than others. So, you know, rep emails me back after I send a sample request and be like, is it okay if it's in a different finish? That may be totally fine for the circumstance, mm-hmm. but just having quick availability. I mean, that was the purpose of reps coming into the to our offices every week was bringing fixtures and samples and showing off new things. And now that we're not doing that as often, you know, ordering a sample is still like a bit of a hassle. I guess it's not. It's you just call up the rep and ask them to get it for you. But we all know that in 2022, there's more apps on our phones, more software out there. There's more things in general that ironically enough, all seem to not only add value, but sometimes maybe create confusion or you have to keep track of each individual digital tool that's out there in order to help us do things 
create things, make things, or just learn about things. The things that are important to lighting designers are obviously the tools in their toolbox, which not only are the design principles, but the products themselves. We talked just a little bit more about this and the tools that are available in terms of new technology products that are in the marketplace. Well, and Sam, going back to a question that you asked about what, you know, what are they doing? What can they be doing? I mean, when you talk about the role of the rep, and just as a side plug, like I think some education in terms of, it took me a long time to understand the food chain, you know, mm. of where the money comes from, why when I write something on a, on a piece of paper, it doesn't show up on the field and, and all the steps in between. And it's very complicated. So I think there's a need to demystify you know, some of that rat's nest. That being said, the rep does play a really important role. To your point, there is more product out there. There are more lines out there. There are more options out there than ever before. And a really, really good rep will get to know you as a designer, your business, your decision-making process, the kinds of things that you're going to gravitate towards, the clients, the clients that you work for, and what they're going to pay for, and put in front of you the things you can use and really start to curate and cultivate the right stuff. And then when you start to expand that to different markets, you know, and working with, you know, reps all across, you know, the nation, the world, you know, it really becomes an important piece to help us be more efficient. But reps that are bringing in lines for the sake of bringing in lines or, hey, I'm going to show you the next best widget that really isn't what I'm trying to get at for the client or why it's so different and why I'm specifying it. And, you know, those are the reps that set themselves apart. And I think in this industry, we still need that. One of the most powerful things that we have as humans today is the opportunity to be connected. Connected in the sense that we can learn from each other, we can learn faster, and we can get the opinions or the values or the reasoning or the articles or the studies behind what it is we need for the people we want, fortunately and maybe unfortunately, at the click of a button. Talking through the idea of this, we dove into it just a little bit more with our guests to talk about what does it mean to have that social level of engagement and how can we create one massive Slack channel? How can we create one massive forum? How can we create maybe just one simple consolidated place where designers can share things they want to share and learn from each other so that the industry, the practice, the profession of the trade can learn together and elevate itself more? I think that it's great for junior staff, up and coming designers. I mean, the reason I got the nickname, the Katabase, right, is because I just loved getting to know all of that information. You know, I wanted to be the person that people would come to. I wanted to, you know, say, what's an equal for this? Well, I can tell you it's X, Y, Z, you know, but, you know, I, I, I think that especially right now, younger staff and younger designers and they just don't have access to that. And and so those search engines are great because it just gives them the open world to see, you know? Well, I think internally, we actually, instead of a single person database, <laughs> um, we, we use Slack very extensively in our firm and we have a fixture research Slack and I just call it the hive mind. And, you know, if I have a client who's like, hey, I'm looking for a fixture that does this. And I just like, I don't know, just post it and somebody will come up with an answer. We should or probably scale that out of LAM and well, make frankly, that available for the whole industry. Well, and so that's so that is an interesting idea is like, how do you how do you make instead of it being searchable as a database, you're just pinging the user group. Yep, Sam, we need to set up a light eye Slack channel. We've for talked about this all before. For the hive mind. We talked about this. But we'll call it Dan's Last hive mind. No, no, no. <laughs> Towards the end of the conversation, 
I put a hypothetical out there. You know, what would it be like if you as a designer could just go somewhere, get access to all the information you need and tell them exactly what you want? Like, this is what I'm looking to specify. This is where I'm doing it. Here's the part number. Oh, and by the way, uh, thanks for the price as well. This will definitely work. Send me a sample and we'll get this spec'd out. In reality, it seems easy to do, but for some reason it hasn't quite happened yet. So I asked them, hey, what if? And here's what they had to say. But the other knowledge base that we alluded to in the break that I want to talk to is pricing and the fact that we can know sort of generally how much things cost, we think, but something that always frustrates me is like, I spec a couple things on a on a cut sheet, having thinking like, oh, it's a, let's say it's an 80-ish linear foot fixture. But I spec a couple things thinking I want those features, not knowing that that's actually driving the price up significantly. Or that they that XYZ manufacturer actually is having a, a procurement issue and that they're pushing out 16 weeks but haven't really told anybody or that that's going to drive up the cost to get it sooner or whatnot. All that stuff is invisible to us. And then we look like ass to our clients when projects go out to bid and the whole thing's over budget beyond our capabilities. And again, I think this is where this education is needed between all the steps. And we got into this the other night having a conversation, Sam and I, about you know where the food chain starts and ends and, and why things change along it based on market conditions and a million other factors. And I think it is reasonable as lighting designers to say, I need to know what the cost of a fixture is if I'm going to recommend it to a client. It's difficult to walk into a Lowe's and see the price of tile and know what the price of tile is and see what the price of fixtures are there and then not be able or to just figure the CSI that out. Index. But, and I think what we're really looking for is maybe even not specifics, because there's a lot of reasons why specifics might not be available today or tomorrow or next week. But Even though all, those, all that information is in a database somewhere that somebody can access and figure out exactly how much that thing costs. But there are market conditions that change and situations that can change it you know, up and down the line. I guess the point that I'm saying is a range is well within our reach. And understanding what distributor net really means and starting there and making sure everybody's speaking the same language and using the same terms and then building it up and coming up with the right factors in the right markets. Because maybe it's 30% in one and maybe it's 50 in another, you know, and Mm -hmm. maybe there need to be some other tools for um, specifiers in terms of, you know, equal markets and things like that in terms of what are the true equals today. As we came to a close, I had a direct conversation with Kate. Kate works at Canon Design, which is a large firm that's vertically integrated. It's not a standalone independent lighting designer. But at the same time, there's still a set of peers sitting in her office that don't pay attention to that. And uh, it may be a, a bit easier to relate. So we chatted with her just a little bit about what is it that the lighting designer needs from all the other peers in the industry, on the design side, on the engineering side. And she shared just a little bit more with us on that. I think that we have done a good job at educating within our firm. But what I think that we need is our principals, our client-facing leaders to to really be able to value lighting design when selling to the client if we're not there in front of them. And, you know, I, I sort of alluded to this a little bit earlier when we were chatting, uh, that it would be nice if there were some utility incentive or or something for using a certified lighting designer, you know, or or some ab- ability to really say this is a savings to the uh, the end user, um, and and being able to get lighting designers really in the door that way. As we concluded, I had one last topic that I wanted to 
scratch the surface and just get their opinions on. In our industry, there are so many people who touch lighting, who are involved with lighting, but the crux of how to use that and what to do with it comes from lighting designers. We know who they are, we know why they exist, we know what they're good at, and there's no reason we can't recommend or refer them out to anybody that has questions that might pertain to design. Yet, there's people who choose to take it in-house. There's people who choose to offer this service in exchange for an order, in exchange for procuring equipment through them. The reps, the manufacturers, and sometimes general contractors or developers. I ask them, why not send everybody to the lighting design community? And their responses were point blank, straightforward. And it's definitely something that we can all think about and consider just a little bit more. Well, first of all, they don't do that to us. Second of all, we take it very seriously that we don't do those things because that's a conflict of interest. To me, like lighting hardware is this huge ecosystem and we're trying to find the best and most appropriate hardware for a particular project or a particular installation. And in a lot of cases, there's 15 different manufacturers that could meet the criteria. And the fact that I chose product A over B is usually because I'm moving quickly and that's the one I know. Do I ultimately care? Sometimes, sometimes not. But like, I'm not going to spec product from a rep agency because they're nice to me one time. That's, I, they should do that because then they will get zero specs from me. <laughs> well, and, and to look at it another way, it certainly doesn't do a rep agency um, from a bigger picture standpoint any help. It doesn't help their core business, their core industry of selling lighting products if they devalue the lighting design service by doing things in-house or not using a lighting designer at all or you know what what that kind of end result is of course you know a smaller market of people that care about something that they're trying to sell i think by looking at it as how can they elevate the designer the design you know and the the artistry in the design you know how could they make that better for their business and better to sell that to other people i mean that's the way that would make sense um, and it frustrates me to no end when I hear, you know, that a rep agency just redid their office and they didn't use a lighting designer. And it's like, that just is just a, a head scratcher to me. But I think a lot of the reason for that is that, you know, from the manufacturers and rep agencies perspective, and I could be off base on this, you know, they're in the business of selling lighting hardware. So they're in the business of finding things that look flashy and cool and bring attention to our eye. But as a lighting designer, I actually want the opposite the best work that we do is architecturally integrated lighting mm -hmm. where you're not seeing the hardware at all. And mm -hmm. I don't care if it's a bare strip or some you know, $100 linear foot cove product. I just care that the light is evenly glowing out of that slot and looks beautiful. And that's a hard pill to swallow if you're in the business of selling light, because frankly, that could be a $30 thing. Like it doesn't have to be something super expensive. My favorite projects are the ones where I'm bound to a super tight budget and have to use bear strips everywhere and come up with interesting ways of being creative, yeah. doing those things. It goes without saying this conversation was one that I've been itching to have with folks like this for a while. I'm always curious to know what does everybody think? More specifically, what does one sector of our industry think about the others or what do they need from the others in order to continue to be successful? My hope is that this was not only helpful to them, but helpful to all of you and that you take a moment and share this. 
This is real information. This isn't scripted. This is just straight from the heart. It's what they wanted to share with you, and I hope that you found value. At the end of the day, it all comes down to core competency. Everybody has a job to do, and lighting designers design lighting. They know good lighting. They know how to achieve good lighting. They know how to do that within the right budget. They know how to make sure that ultimately when someone walks into an environment, the journey they go on is the one that it's intended to give them. I asked each one of them for some closing thoughts. And then I said, make sure you share who you are and how people can get in touch with you. Because I know that this conversation is only getting started. It's always exciting to talk about this kind of stuff, especially we were discussing over the break how it's so needed to share information between professionals, especially when we're fighting uphill battles with fees and time and everything else. So thank you for allowing me to be in the designer seat again. And I'm serious that if anybody wants to join the Light Eye Slack channel to talk about this kind of stuff and other things, you can reach me and I will put you on it uh, at sarah at lighteye.com, L-Y-T-E-I. Let's see, what are my closing thoughts? I mean, I have just enjoyed this conversation immensely. I've learned a lot, which, you know, it shows you that no matter where you are in your you know career, there's always more to learn. I mean, lighting is just amazing in that way. I think, you know, the biggest thing right now is communication for me, whether it's between manufacturers, reps, clients, uh, internal design teams, and then our community. We have to keep communicating. You can get a hold of me at K St. Laurent, S-T-L-A-U-R-E-N-T, at canondesign.com. Interesting that after t- having this conversation, the, the thing that I've actually come to realize is the things that we're griping about, I, I, I wouldn't exactly go so, go so far as to say that I'm like seriously griping about them because in a lot of ways, I do have most of the things that I need to work very efficiently. I'm working in a 3D, 3D modeling program that allows me to see things in real time. If I ask a rep for a sample or ask them for some information, they're incredibly responsive and really helpful. I have nothing but good things to say about all of the reps that call on LAM partners. They're wonderful people and like some of them are actually friends of mine in personal ways. And I think a lot of the manufacturers have already started to figure out that, you know, their digital presence is critical in the 21st century and that if they don't get their proverbial shit together, they're going to be left behind. We're going to have to bleep out so much if you're Dan. Sorry. <laughs> don't be. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Light Pod. On behalf of this entire group that was a part of this conversation and everybody at LightEye, we appreciate your support. We appreciate the opportunity to take the voice of the community, amplify it, elevate it, and create a better sense of community and connectivity than really we've ever had before. If there's a conversation like this that you wish we could have, that we could host, that we could help curate and make it better known, let us know. Drop us a line at empower at Until next time, cheers. Cheers.